I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, made possible in part by Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce, hand-harvested, sustainably farmed, whole fruit and vegetables, certified, pesticide-free, and used within hours of picking, and by listeners like you. You can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash theopenmind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Chris Bale. He is director of the Polarization Lab at Duke University and a scholar and professor there and author of the new book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Chris, let's get right to it. How do we make our platforms less polarizing? Well, you know, I think the most important thing for your listeners to understand is that a lot of the prevailing narratives about how we might fix social media don't have a lot of evidence when we turn to the research. So things like, you know, the idea of the echo chamber, even foreign misinformation campaigns or algorithms that radicalize us, a lot of these things don't seem to be moving the needle very much when we look at the research. So when you do look at the research, what does move the needle or do we not know yet? Well, before we before we go to the solutions, let's 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 take a minute to think about the kind of I think the way most of us would like social media to be. We'd like it to really be a competition of ideas. We'd like, you know, people to share their ideas and and discuss their value and then, you know, the kind of best ideas would rise to the top. And when we think about something like the echo chamber or the idea that, you know, social media has allowed us to segregate ourselves from people who don't share our views, this is really the engine behind that idea that, you know, if only we could step outside our echo chambers and begin to expose ourselves to a more diverse set of views, then, you know, we'd see moderation and we'd see, uh, you know, we'd see people really beginning to understand that there's two sides to every story or being able to, you know, empathize with each other. But really, you know, what the research shows is, is that that idea just really isn't, you know, isn't why uh, there that idea really isn't explaining and capturing why people use social media. It's not really a competition of ideas. It's a competition of our identities. But it is in real time, a weaponized form of political rhetoric. And we saw long before the January 6th insurrection violence. And that was not clear to a lot of users of social media, but on our program, The Open Mind, we hosted Vincent Fella Hendricks, a scholar of social media, and talked about all the way dating back to pre-Trump election in 2014 and 2015, talked about the red feed, blue feed phenomenon that was beginning to emerge. Uh, And you say the research doesn't support this idea of defeating the echo chamber as a means to de-radicalize. But we know that the business model that was exploited, that culminated in the insurrection and events prior to that during the Trump administration, like the Tree of Life synagogue massacre, we know the roots of that were in the business models of these companies. Sure. And, and I would never argue that, you know, there's not a lot of room, room for improvement on the, on the platform side. But let me tell you about an experiment that our Duke Polarization Lab did in 2017 that I think might shed some light on this issue. Uh, we recruited about 1200 Republicans and Democrats who use Twitter. And we, you know, we did a survey of their views. Uh, we, you know, everything from climate change to 
racial justice to government regulation in the economy. And then about a week later, we offered half of them uh, money to follow a Twitter bot or an automated account that would expose them to 24 messages a day from a member of the opposing political party. Think, you know, journalists, elected officials, even advocacy organizations. And the idea and the hope of this study is that by taking people out of their echo chambers, they would become more moderate. Instead, what we saw after one month of this is that almost nobody was becoming more moderate. And unfortunately, most people were becoming a little more polarized, especially Republicans. So when we when we exposed Republicans to Democrats, we saw that they became substantially more conservative in their views. So this says to me, you know, that, um, yes, there are top down issues. Absolutely. You know, profit incentives. And, and my new book talks a lot about how we might realign those incentives to try to to try to you know reverse course. But I think first we have to understand the human motivation for using social media and understand, of course, that political polarization predates the emergence of, of social media by about easily 10 or 20 years. So, you know, something like January 6th, absolutely social media played a role and absolutely, you know, platforms could do better. But if we really want to understand where the motivation for social media users to engage in such horrific activity comes from. We need to go a lot deeper and really think about why we're using social media in the first place. In the formation of social media as a way to keep track of friends and family and reconnect with old roommates and pen pals from ages long ago, that was the original model. Sue Gardner of Wikimedia joined me in the mid-2010s on The Open Mind to discuss the question that I asked her, which was if these websites were really intended to be pro-social as opposed to anti-social, why were they not incentivized as non-for-profits or even you know, there is a designation mm -hmm. for a company that has a constructive civic impact on society. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about those incentive structures and mm -hmm. your suggestions in the book um, for, for based on where we are now, because we know that the original incentives were, uh, at least as they were promoted, were not the ones that became deployed uh, very soon after the beginning, right. very soon after these companies went public, frankly. Yeah. And, you know, we as consumers of social media, I think, have been content to accept the chaotic ad hoc evolution of social media platforms from serving, you know, the esoteric needs of small corners of the internet to becoming, you know, the public square for democracy in the 21st century. And when we look at the purpose of, you know, Facebook or, or Instagram or Twitter, you know, these platforms were designed to, for example, help undergraduate students rate each other's physical attractiveness, or in the case of Instagram, you know, arrange alcohol centric gatherings. So why on earth should we expect them to, to serve again, the complex, you know, needs of democracies entering the 21st century? They simply don't. And, and more importantly, we've never asked the question, you know, what is the purpose of our platforms? I mean, yes, we all have that experience you mentioned earlier, you know, reconnecting with old friends, you know, cute cats, uh, you know, the, the, the fuzzier parts of the Internet. And certainly there's some value there. But if we wanted to design social media in a way that brought us together and, and promoted social cohesion instead of increasing incivility, as it's so clearly doing right now, what design principles would we want to build into the platforms themselves? And that's where our work in the Duke Polarization Lab, I hope, can shed some light on this. Um, 
you know, one challenge for all of us who want to answer that question is that doing research on the social media platforms right now is really tricky in the wake of, you know, the Cambridge Analytica affair, where research was used to model a, uh, you know, political micro-targeting campaign. Uh, a lot of academic research on Facebook and, and other social media platforms has, has been shut down. And so, you know, even though we might like to experiment on core features of Facebook, for example, how its algorithms sort our news feeds or how it recommends people to connect with, you know, these, these types of experiments just aren't possible right now. And so what we did was create a social media platform for scientific research. And then we paid people to kind of help us test it. Um, and by carefully controlling how people are brought together and the kind of circumstances under which they interact, really controlling the filter bubble or the echo chamber, if you like, um, you know, we were able to, to pin down some, some somewhat counterintuitive solutions um, that, that we think might move the needle. So can you expound on those? Yeah, sure. So, you know, one, one that's, you know, particularly surprising to me is, is anonymity. Um, we've all had the experience, I think, of interacting with an anonymous person on the Internet who was, you know, not uh, not the most civil person, let's say. So in the book, for example, I tell the story of uh, one of our research subjects, uh, a guy who I call Ray. And Ray is, you know, when you talk to him on, you know, uh, in person or on the phone, you, you find a, a really polite man, you know, moderate Republican, but he goes out of his way to kind of decry racism and complain about how uncivil people are on social media. But in my book, I had the opportunity to both study people with, you know, in the context of high powered data science field experiments and do these interviews at the same time. And one of the things that jumped off the off the page at me was the difference, how different people can be online and off. So this guy, Ray, despite being one of the more polite people we met, each night he turns into one of the most prolific political trolls on the Internet. I mean, meme after meme, you know attacking liberal uh, politicians in the, in the most unspeakable ways, a really kind of a Dr. Heckle, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of transformation. And so on the one hand, we know anonymity can allow people like Ray to say things that they would never say in person online, uh, really to the detriment of the rest of us. But on the other hand, we know that anonymity allows us to, to some degree, take our identities out of the equation so when we log into social media, I think knowingly or unknowingly, we're really kind of playing a big game. We're, we're boosting our team and, and taking the other team down. And so one thing that anonymity can do, if it's properly structured, we reasoned, was to allow people to have conversations that focus on ideas instead of the identities of the people who are delivering them. And so when we paid about uh, 1,600 people to use our new social media platform, we were able to turn on and off anonymity. And we paired Republicans and Democrats to have these cross-party conversations about some pretty polarizing issues, immigration and gun control. And we were very su surprised to discover that people who used our app to engage in an anonymous conversation about one of these topics with a member of the other party became much less polarized after you know just uh, uh, about an hour of interaction. And maybe even more interesting, you know, the results seem to be stronger for Republicans. So allowing Republicans to have an anonymous conversation with a Democrat made them depolarize even more than Democrats. When we talk about social media reform, we talk about 
the monopolization of these platforms, really an industry of monopoly that's governed by Facebook and Twitter, and of course, Alphabet as well, and their respective properties, um, YouTube in the case of Alphabet, Instagram in the case of Facebook. So at the forefront is the public policy challenge of reigning in a monopoly. Um, that is one aspect of this conversation. Another aspect of this conversation is that there are shareholders. And as companies transform into delivering a more progressive social footprint um, and the, the demand of their employees and, and potentially their shareholders to be companies that foster inclusiveness and equity and that do not promote in any way bigotry. Um, that is part of this conversation. And those are higher level solutions than the implementation of micro reforms to anonymity. What, what do you say, Chris, about those higher level systemic areas of, of reform or potential reform? Well, listen, we're about to have a really important debate in this country about regulation of social media. And, and I would love to tell you that, you know, there are three reforms that I think social media companies can enact right now that would really move the needle. I mean, I'm not necessarily suggesting, you know, that anonymity, you know, that we should make Facebook an anonymous. I think that would be a, a disaster, actually. I think what we need to do is kind of rethink from the, from the ground up, you know, what is the purpose of the platform? Um, can a platform that's about, you know, reconnecting with old friends and looking at cute cat pictures also serve as the primary forum for, you know, serious political discussion. And I think, you know, if we take the long view for a moment and look at how social media platforms kind of come and go, you know, we see a few things. One, we see, you know, uh, you know, the, the graveyard of social media is, is pretty well populated at this point. A lot of failed efforts to, uh, to, to kind of move the needle. And yes, a few large monopolies. But also widespread public dissatisfaction with, you know, Facebook, Twitter, other platforms. Nobody really seems to like social media and yet we all keep using it. So it suggests to me that there's, you know, there's going to be some market incentives to create a new kind of platform for discussion of politics. Now, is, is everybody going to use it? Of course not. But we know already that most people aren't talking about politics on our platform. So, they, you know, even though, you know, people like you and I, you know, talk about this all day, only about 6% of Facebook posts are about politics. And let me give you a staggering quote or data point on Twitter. 73% of tweets about politics are made by just 6% of Twitter users. And those 6% of Twitter users, of course, have you know, really strong views. So, you know, if we think about, you know, the diversification of social media, we've already seen splintering according to, you know, hobbies or, you know, different subcultures. Why not one for politics? Um, you know, will it displace Facebook overnight? Of course not. Um, but would it allow more serious discussion about people who genuinely want to find, uh, find compromise and, and the majority of Americans who, who actually do want compromise? Uh, I think the answer for, you know, a talented group of entrepreneurs might be yes. Chris, when you consider the landscape, you, you know that there are some acts of Congress reforming Section 230, the Honest Ads Act by Amy Klobuchar, uh, Mark Warner, and mm -hmm. the late John McCain. And there's also the idea of, of reclassification so that if you're on YouTube, 
or you're on Twitter or Facebook or some sub section of those sites that you can identify what are the set, the, the, the fiction sections and the nonfiction sections. And I'm wondering if any of your research has shed light on the potential efficacy of classification systems that have not been adopted by these platforms. Mm-hmm. And moreover, the greater transparency that Senator Klobuchar wants to bring to these platforms. Transparency would be great. I mean, I think the number one uh, request from researchers I speak with would be more data. You know, all of the data we want is kind of, you know, hidden to a large degree, especially in the case of Facebook behind closed doors. So, you know, we we simply don't have enough data to answer answer questions like that right now. But with the data we've been able to collect, um, you know, we're not seeing that strong actions by uh, social media companies are likely to move the needle a lot on things like polarization. So let's take some examples. We already talked about the echo chamber. Well, let's talk about foreign misinformation campaigns. I think a lot of us, especially in, you know, 2016, 2017, you know, watched uh, Russia and other foreign governments, you know, launch these far ranging campaigns uh, to divide Americans and thought, well, you know, this is this is a perfect uh, kind of just so story. Right. Uh, You know, it, it explains everything. We weren't really that divided. You know, Russia interfered. It allowed some entrepreneurial, you know, politicians to 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 take charge. But when we were able to collect data on people who interacted with Russia-linked internet research agency accounts um, through cooperation with Twitter and U.S. intelligence, we were really surprised to discover that interacting with an IRA account didn't really change people's attitudes much at all. In fact, we couldn't detect any statistically significant effects um, on a r- wide range of attitudes and behaviors. And, and since that study, there's been a few other studies that, that, that have similar kind of uh, null effects or, or don't show a, uh, an effect of interacting with foreign misinformation. You know, finally, the idea that algorithms are radicalizing us, you know, really seductive idea, especially when, you know, we're told that it's being used for profit. And though we might not be able to sort out, you know, how much profit is being made, we can try to look at some patterns in, for example, web browsing behavior. And a recent study of YouTube concluded that far less than 2% of people are going down the proverbial uh, extremist rabbit hole on, on YouTube. That is, you know, seeing and being served increasingly extreme videos that might radicalize them. And another study suggested it might be as few as one in 100,000 people. So for me, I mean, there's two takeaways from this. One is we need more data. We need more research. But two is what the trends are starting to show is that from the top down, there might not be a ton that we can do from a regulation standpoint. And and we're going to have much more bang for our buck if we explore bottom-up solutions and really try to understand the supply side of polarization. You know, what is driving us to, you know, tweet out into the ether every night or every afternoon attacking the other side. And and I think there's where we have the most uh, latitude to really move the needle. It sounds like you're pessimistic or at least skeptical of the high-level solutions from regulators or even from the companies themselves, um, although it does sound like you, you believe the most promise is from those companies adopting new experimentation based on research you and others are doing. It's just a, a, a final question. We recently hosted Sanan Aral of mm-hmm. MIT on our program, and he thinks 
a little bit more holistically in terms of the monopolies of these companies and the necessity of new platforms to emerge where you can take all of your existing friends, connections, data and own it and decide, I don't like the value system of Facebook. Let's say they reinstate President Trump after banning him for inciting violence. Or we know the track record of Twitter and the bots that proliferated a huge amount of disinformation over years. Don't we deserve to have a marketplace where new platforms can be viable competitors? And if so, doesn't that take um, you know, major regulatory reform? Absolutely, we need new options. And in my book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, I discuss what I think the kind of ideal platform would look like. I think at the end of the day, though, you know, we're going to have people using the platforms. And yes, we can nudge people towards less polarizing behavior by creating better incentive structures. So one idea that I promote in my book, for example, is that instead of boosting content that lots of people engage with on one side, boost content that lots of different people engage with. Um, you know, that can really design for democracy in, instead of, you know, setting us up to, to you know, retreat further into our echo chambers. But there's so much that ordinary social media users can do, too. Um, you know, we can all learn to see what I call the social media prism, the tendency of social media to amplify the most extreme parts of the continuum and, and make moderation seem invisible. And the good news, you know, even though it's bad news that, uh, you know, we social media users are a big part of the problem, that also means that we have a lot of power to reverse the course. So in the polarization lab, we spent the last three years developing new technology that social media users can do to, for example, identify moderates. We have a bipartisanship leaderboard that tracks prominent uh, politicians, journalists, intellectuals. Um, according to how much their tweets tend to resonate across political divides using kind of the latest advances in machine learning and other techniques. We have bots that retweet these messages. We have other tools that allow people to find conversations where bipartisan uh, compromise is emerging. Um, so I think, you know, these are the types of interventions, you know, even if we kind of move the game to a different playing field, um, you know, we need people to learn that, you know, our behavior collectively you know, produces these dynamics in addition to the top-down solution. So yes, of course we need, you know, scrutiny from the top-down. Of course we need new options. But I think we'd be naive to conclude that, you know, people themselves aren't going to revert back to the same type of, of behavior that we've seen across so many platforms thus far. Chris Bale, thank you so much for your insight today. Sure thing. Thanks for having me.